Now on to the text before us. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 that we're looking at this morning. And if you think about it this way, our U.S. Constitution begins with a preamble. Anybody have to memorize that in middle school? I, a couple of, Dick's, Dick's ready, okay. I don't know how much you remember, Dick. I remember we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, the brain cells from eighth grade have gone dead after that. But I have that much, you, and I know how it fits together. You have a preamble followed by the document proper. Proverbs and its structure works the same way. When we read the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, he's beginning there, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, is the preamble. And then he's going to have a series of lectures that between then and chapter 9 where he is basically exhorting and encouraging and motivating us to hear these sayings, these proverbs, these words of instruction designed for us to use all our hearts and our minds to get wisdom, skill in living. And the Proverbs proper, the main book proper, starts at chapter 1, verse 8. The Proverbs proper start at chapter 10, verse 1. And so that's the structure of it. So this morning, we are looking at the preamble, which is found in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, and it begins, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. Lord, we have read your word. And without your spirit, this word can fall like just words on a page. But we ask your spirit to take this special revelation of yourself, revealing to us the way of salvation, the means of salvation, the scope of salvation, and the person, the Messiah through whom salvation comes, Jesus Christ. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would guide and lead us into all truth, that you would be our counselor, our sage, our wise teacher. And as, Father, you, through Jesus, taught, you seek worshipers, worshipers who will worship you not only in truth but in spirit. So we pray that the truth would be applied to our heart by Holy Spirit, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Andrew rightly prayed, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said, the thief, and he's speaking of Satan, the accuser, the enemy of God, the enemy of God's people. And he came for one reason. The thief is there to steal, kill, and destroy. The, the thief is every ounce anti-life, anti the God of life, anti the church. And Jesus describes his coming in this way. He says, I have come to give you life, that you may have life and life to the full. In every way imaginable, yes, including the unborn, but way bigger than just the unborn, Jesus is pro-life. He's the God of life. And he's wanting in every way imaginable and everything he does for us to give us life. 
In 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 13, we learn from the Apostle Paul that wisdom, which we learned this week is basically, what can we describe wisdom? See, wisdom and love are not synonymous, but basically wisdom can be seen as love in action, love applied to relationships with God and neighbor, love with flesh on it, love that, as we described wisdom last week, is knowing how things really happen in the world, how they really work, knowing how things really are, and knowing what to do about it. And so if the culmination, the outgrowth of wisdom is a life filled with faith, hope, and love, Paul says in chapter 13, verse 13, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And wisdom shows us the manifestation of these in a life consumed with, captivated with, and directed towards the glory of God. And N.T. Wright, speaking on wisdom and love and virtue, has this to say about virtue, wisdom, or love in action. He says, welcome then to Paul's greatest exposition of the greatest virtue. He says, here is the goal, what in Greek is called the telos, which means the purpose, the state where we are to share in what is known as the teleon, which is the perfect, the complete, the mature. He says, one day the whole cosmos will attain perfection, completeness, maturity. And within that renewed cosmos, human beings, redeemed, elect humanity, will attain the perfection proper to them, the maturity which will enable them at last to be the royal priesthood, mediating God's wise stewardship to the world and the world's glad worship back to its maker. And if that is the telos of the goal, here are the virtues, the strengths, the habits of heart, mind, and life which will form you into the person you need to be for that day and will anticipate, even within this present, partial, and incomplete world, something of the life of the new and complete one. Virtue for Paul and for the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, is part of inaugurated eschatology, part of the life of the future, that completed whole that has broken into the present and is manifest in the life and the character of God's people, the new humanity, which is why he says it is both hard and glorious work. As James put it, as Gabe read for us a few moments ago, our trials, our challenges, our circumstances, our relationships, our suffering, everything, the way God orchestrates our entire life, the way God writes our story, is all intended for us to attain this maturity, this wholeness, this completion, this perfection, what we are calling human flourishing. I said last week human flourishing is not the same as humanism. Humanism is life totally devoid, autonomous of God, and it is not flourishing at all. As a matter of fact, it's what the Bible calls death. But Jesus came to give us life, and he wants humans to flourish. And human flourishing is being what God intended you and designed and redeemed you and elected you to be for his glory. And wisdom is the manifestation of that, the culmination of what that looks like in action, knowing how life really is, knowing its constituent parts, and knowing what to do about it. Faith, hope, and love and action. And in these seven verses, this preamble Instead of saying, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, 
We have Solomon, the son of David, rooted in biblical history. The son of David is so important that he says that because that means he's in the offspring and in the line and the genealogy and the descendancy of Jesus Christ. This is rooted in redemptive history. Solomon, son of David and king of Israel. And this preamble will teach us two things. Will teach us the purpose of the Proverbs and will teach us the principle of the Proverbs. The purpose, the aims are listed for us in verses 2 to 6. So look with me down at verses 2 to 6. And after he introduces himself, okay, so in other words, Solomon's going, Hi, my name is Solomon. This is who I am. Okay, you got that rooted in biblical history. Now, why am I giving? Here's the preamble to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. So let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Here's the purpose. And in other words, if you look at it, in fact, all you have to do is look at verses 2, 3, 4, and 6, and they all begin with the word to. Just if we do some Bible study together, that two is in order to indicating here's the goal, here's the aims, here's Solomon saying, here's where why I'm writing this. Here's why I'm editing and composing this. And the summary statement for it is given in verse two to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Verse two is a summary statement, say, basically saying, revealing the summary of the purpose of it. And it's to know these things, to know this, to internalize this, to experience this. And Ray Ortland, in his commentary on this, basically says, if you take these verses and boil it down to two main goals, here's the two main goals God has for us. And the two goals can be summed up as deep character that comes from straight thinking. Deep character, to know wisdom and instruction, how do we get that? From straight thinking, to understand words of insight. That's the summary statement of it. Verses 3 and 4 tell us more about deep character. Basically, that we are to be a community of growing people. Notice that even in verse 5, it talks about how the wise continue to learn, increase in learning. In other words, you never rest on your laurels. You've never attained it all. No matter how much you've grown, are you always ask yourself this question. How are you growing? Are you increasing in words of understanding and insight? Are you increasing in learning? And are you increasing in character and in thinking? Bruce Waltke, commenting on this, puts it this way. He says, wisdom always entails the shaping of character. Wisdom is never meant to be just pure knowledge. Knowledge, as I mentioned last week, is the doorway. It's entailed through understanding and knowledge, but it's always meant to be the means, never the end. And know the difference between the means and the end. Discretion, understanding, knowledge, information is the means, wisdom, character, holistic personality, comprehensive growth, as we're going to see in a few moments, conformity to the image of Jesus, character change, heart change, is the end. 
Bruce Waltke words it like this. He says, once accepted, discipline or wisdom springs from the power of internalized wisdom, experiential wisdom, not from sporadic New Year's resolutions. He calls it a matter of inward spirit, not of a coerced will and servile compliance. He continues, he says, wisdom and instruction cannot be gained without understanding. The hearer must be able to understand the words of the sages. That's why the purpose is given in verse 2, to understand words of insight. And the words of the sayings here of the book were aimed at giving Israel's youth insight or understanding, which is real interesting because many object. In fact, you read the commentaries, you read, what you pay me to do? reading all the different scholars and what they say, many object and they say, the Proverbs are not connected with the history of Israel and biblical history. All it is is a bunch of disjointed sayings and aphorisms. How does it connect? And that's absolutely not true. Because even though you won't hear direct, explicit mention of, say, Israel's covenant and Israel's election and things such as that, in the context, the Proverbs were meant to be taught to youth, from their wives, wise sages, Solomon, who was king of Israel, all the way down to parents and their children, the elders of Israel, the shepherds and the people, teachers and their youth. In other words, it's a fulfillment of what was laid out in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when he summed up the law of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then what does he say? He says, I want you to bind these words on your heart. Put them on your door friends, door frames. Put them on your foreheads. He says, parents, I want you to teach them to your children. When? Not just at family devotions, family, when you're walking, when you're sitting, when you're watching football, when you're doing this, when you're doing that as you're going through all of your life. In other words, you are meant to be consumed with the word of God so that you're eating, drinking, and breathing wisdom. Does that sound like a little bit more than information to you? And that is the direction of the counselor and the sages. Because the people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, and the church in the New Testament are called to be the light to the nations. The priesthood, the royal priesthood of God, which is basically like a bridge telling the world where the life of God, which is the only life, where it's to be found. And the means by which it is done is through the people of God, and God does not have a plan B. So the Proverbs fit in with the entirety of the story and the mission of God, which is why, as Bishop Wright said, that I quoted earlier, the culmination of faith, hope, and love results in a life of human flourishing where we recover our vocation. We recover our calling as a royal priesthood stewarding God's good world. And how do we do this? How do we be this light to the nations? It always strikes me how the wisdom literature of the Old Testament is mirrored and reflected. You want to talk about the unity of the scripture. Never divorce Proverbs or any part of scripture from the rest of the scripture. It strikes me how the wisdom literature of the Proverbs is reflected in the New Testament. See, in verse 3, 
Right after you got the summary statement, verse 3, it talks about in wise dealing, think about this, in righteousness, justice, and equity. That basically is a summary of the word of God, of loving God and loving neighbor. Righteousness, which means justice, justice, fairness, and equity. Love to God and neighbor. And it's very interesting if you want a summation statement of this. In Romans 8, 28 to 30, and I bet you we know Romans 8, 28. We love those words, don't we? They're so comforting. You know what they say? I'll even soften my voice for this. Okay? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I love that verse. My hernia surgery, all things are working together for good. It's a wonderful thing. Isn't it a great thing? It's a great And be comforted by it. You ought to be. But now let me give you a word of exhortation. Don't stop at verse 28. Because verse 29 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he, fore, he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I want you to notice something here. Because this is where all of, why did I have us read out of James chapter 1 earlier? This is where all of wisdom, this is where faith, hope, and love, this is where everything is going. It is going to maturity, completion, wholeness. What the Bible calls perfection doesn't mean sinlessness. It means wholeness, completion, the telos of the entire Bible. And verse 28 ends with the words called according to purpose. And verse 29 explains what that purpose is. Verse 29 says that in a nutshell, everything that happens to us is working out for our ultimate and final salvation and holiness and wisdom, which is conformity to the image of his son. The firstborn among many brothers, which is us. One commentator put it this way, God not only brings his power to bear on every circumstances, but he conforms all events to cohere to his master plan. And his master plan here is given in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now let me give a word of warning to myself and anyone in here who is a teacher. I'm going to give you encouragement and I'm going to give you a warning. Encouragement, continue to teach on predestination. Warning, don't you dare teach on predestination without teaching on the purpose of predestination. The purpose of predestination is not, wow, I'm elect, so that I can integrate the world's the Titanic. They're all going to hell in a handbasket. And I'm on the Titanic, and God has chosen me for a raft and a lifeboat. Isn't that wonderful? Read verse 29 and the purpose. God, those God foreknew, he predestined to be what? to be conformed to the image of his son. That means the purpose of our election, the purpose of our predestination, the purpose of everything is wisdom, is faith, hope, and love, is character change, is our personality becoming and becoming formed into the image of Jesus Christ holistically from the inside out. 
And it means, as Tim Keller writes, everything is working together so we will be conformed to the likeness, the image of God's Son. God is all about character change, heart change. What makes everything work together for good is God's purpose. He writes, it is not that Christians will somehow have better circumstances, a better life than non-Christians. That is not it at all. The same good and bad things that happen to all people just have a different purpose in Christians than they do in non-Christians. God uses them and Christians to make us, to refine us into the likeness of Christ. That is God's master plan in history, to have a new humanity called the church that bears the likeness of his son. It means that God has a master design or form. That master form is Jesus. He's the mold. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature, and that every circumstance is designed to shape, polish, melt, mold, smooth, sculpt, frame, cast, and contour us into that master design. And the Proverbs show us that master design. The Proverbs show us the life of wisdom, the culmination of faith, hope, and love. And we talked about how the youth, the children, the student are to be the ones accepting, embracing. But do you want to know what the word disciple means? Disciple means student, means learner, means pupil. And so that means the application question is, are you pursuing and accepting? and surrendering to the instruction of your master? Are you surrendering to his instruction that is designed and has as its master plan to refine and mold and make you into the image of his son? That's the first point, the purpose of Proverbs. Look with me at verse 7 and the principle of Proverbs. Verse 7 sums up the principle when it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Bruce Waltke says what the alphabet is to reading, notes to reading music, and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. The structure of this verse teaches us a lot when we look at what is the fear of the Lord. I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew poetry here with Theologians and scholars and Hebrew poetry experts teach us, they say it's based on a concept known as parallelism. Parallelism is basically you either have two or three lines. So in verse 7, you have two lines. Line A is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Line B is fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in Hebrew parallelism, line B is always meant to either clarify or amplify to expand on the meaning of of line A. So here, how does line B, fools despise wisdom and instruction, clarify line A, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? Well, the key to it is the word despise. Fools despise. This is why we said human flourishing can never be humanism. Because autonomous, separate, independent from God makes us a fool and causes us to despise. And that word despise is a very contemptuous, emotional word. It's the arrogance of being above instruction. The arrogance of being too good for it. That's why later you read the Psalms and it talks about the fool has no fear of the Lord. Why does he have no fear of the Lord? Because he's 
He despises instruction. He despises knowledge. He despises the doorway. How's he going to walk into the rest? Remember, I said knowledge is still the means. I wasn't despising knowledge. I was just saying, don't stop there. It's the means, not the end. God uses that for the end of having a humanity that will be like Jesus Christ, that will be the restored, redeemed image of God. And so the fear of the Lord is this attitude of comprehensive openness to him. One commentator put it as letting God be God to you. And I love how one writer, a 19th century preacher, put it, Charles Bridges, he called it affectionate reverence. I love that because so often, I don't know about you, I think of fear and I'm going, the awesomeness of God. And you begin to cower. And there may, I can see, there's, he is completely other. And there's a, but that's not the totality of the fear of the Lord. We're forgetting the affectionate. Was there ever a time where Jesus didn't fear God and have the pride? And yet, what did he call his father? Abba. And again, if God's bringing about heart change, he's combining these things so that it is an affectionate reverence. It's an affectionate wonder at who he is and what he's done for you. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing, in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Lewis writes, and I love how picturesque his writing is, he says, a proud man's always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can never be looking up. You can't see something that is above you. How are you going to see God? Ray Ortland says, our true crisis is not informational. It's relational. We need to know God and have a right relationship with him. Of course, if we're going to grow in the fear of the Lord, the question is how in the world can we have a right relationship with this one who is so other, so completely different? The older theologians called it so numinous. Don't you love that philosophical word? It just sounds heavy, doesn't it? Numinous. I really don't know what it means other than other but it just sounds weighty. And yet we're called, if we're going to grow in the fear of the Lord, to have an affectionate reverence for him. And Tim Keller, I love this illustration, he asked the question, what if wisdom was a person? And he describes how there is a lot of other wisdom literature in ancient Israel, non-canonical, but good literature, nonetheless, that was floating around ancient Israel. And there's one particular piece. It's called the Book of Sirach. And it's the writing of the wisdom of Sirach, the son of Sirach. He says it provides an interesting call and challenge. And the son of Sirach says, Turn unto me, you who are untaught. Why do you say you are lacking in these things, and why are your souls so thirsty? I say to you, find wisdom. Put your neck under its yoke and bear its burden. If you are intent, you can find wisdom. See with your eyes that I've labored for it, and I have found for my soul much rest. And you have in there a typical, non-canonical invitation to wisdom. And now Dr. Keller makes the point, he says, imagine you're a listener several centuries later, and a wise counselor, a sage, a rabbi, a teacher stands up, and he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he points out, notice how similar those statements are. You've got, first of all, the right, they're similar, but there's one incredible momentous that I would say is the secret to wisdom, the key difference. The son of Sirach sees the importance of wisdom. He says, go get it. Do everything in your power to get wisdom. Get the yoke, which is the training. Put your head in the yoke of training. Get discipline. Get the yoke. Get training. And then you will get rest for your souls. Whereas Jesus says, come to me first. Take my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. Then, after I give you rest for your souls, rest from trying to achieve a righteousness, rest from being on the treadmill of performance, rest from having to be good enough, rest from having to attain some status, some position, some favor, rest from everything your soul is looking for, Learn of me and take my yoke upon you. One is work hard, get training, put yourself under the yoke of discipline and I will give you rest. One is take my yoke, I will give you rest, and then you can get the training and the discipline. The order is everything. And Dr. Keller writes, do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am wisdom in personic form. I am the wisdom of God. I am wisdom personified, and a relationship with me is what makes you wise. Wisdom ultimately is not a body of knowledge to master, nor a body of principles to memorize. It is knowing me. Living for me and learning from me is the only thing you can live for and learn from that won't exhaust you. If you begin with rest and learn from Jesus, you get wisdom without exhaustion. You get faith, hope, and love without the drive to succeed. And he points out, he says, John 1, John 1 begins with the words, and the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was God. And that word, word, means logos, which is the Greek for wisdom. And Dr. Keller goes on to say, we could translate this as, in the beginning was the wisdom, and the wisdom was with God, and the wisdom was God. And he says, do you hear what the Bible is teaching us? Do you hear what John is saying? He's saying, here's the secret of wisdom. That in the beginning, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and they lived in perfect love relationships. Perfectly rejoicing in one another, perfectly glorifying in in each other, perfectly deferring to one another, perfectly loving each other. They honor each other. And why did they create the world? In the beginning was the word. So prior to create, why did they do this? He says it was out of that, out of this, an explosion of love and joy that they made the human race and the world to share in that. And so he says, so the meaning of life is not power, it's not struggle, and it's certainly not an accident. It's having those loving relationships. The deepest wisdom, the deepest secret of all reality is to know resemble and embody the inner life of the Trinity. To be united to God, which God embraces and brings us into through our union with Jesus Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning or the principle of wisdom. And it comes from a relationship, a relationship with the one who is wisdom in person form. And wisdom 
who wanted you to share in the love and joy of the Trinitarian reality, that he loved you enough to bear your foolishness, to bear your simple ways on the cross so you could have as a gift the deepest wisdom, the reality of being united to and resembling and embodying the life of the Trinity. Do you want that wisdom? Come to me, Jesus says. Learn from me. Yes, seek instruction, seek knowledge, all for the point of knowing Jesus. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you may know God and know the one whom he has sent. He went to the cross to make that possible for you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, that we would be growing in the fear of you. Oh, how we thank you for the gospel truth and the gospel message. Oh, that we would put ourselves on a journey led by your spirit, initiated by you, royal priests, a light to the nations, living in the fear and admonition of you. Oh, that we would ever increase in learning, move forward in this and grow in the fear of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.